0: Okay, so we are beginning a series where we're really staying on Jesus' great commandment for a while. Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And this commandment really is at the core of what it means to be a disciple. It should be the, the centerpiece that when other people think of Christians their immediate word association is those are people who are not perfect, but they are sincerely trying to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and bring that love into their neighborhoods and into their communities. So a disciple is someone who treats that great commandment like a great commandment, not a great suggestion. They're serious about it. They're thinking through it and trying to push through the ramifications to every inch of their life. And a lot of Christians want to live that out. They're serious about wanting to love God and love their neighbor But sometimes the church hasn't been that great at giving them the tools to do it. Uh, I know from my own journey, I know the frustration of trying to connect these ideals of living for Jesus, loving God with everything that we are, um, growing as a disciple. I know the frustration of, of wanting to do that but not really knowing how to translate that into my Monday through Sunday, kind of the flux and flow of everyday life. And so... I want this series to be one where we come up with a way of thinking about discipleship that really helps us bridge that gap. Um, I don't think it's successful if we get to the end of the series or if I get to the end of any sermon and people are like, that's super exciting. I don't really know what to do with that, so... I'll just kind of put my life in neutral, spiritually speaking, and then show up next Sunday and hope something happens. I want to give us tools and strategies and and kind of handles to to grab onto and run with so that we're building momentum in our spiritual lives. Too many Christian teachers kind of peddle hype and emotionalism. And I think for a lot of people, you get to a certain point, I did probably in my early mid-20s, where um, I was looking for more instruction than I was inspiration. I had lots of inspiration I had lots of passion and desire. I just needed help knowing what it looked like for me as a 21-year-old university student to follow Jesus faithfully. What does that look like? How does that um, play out in terms of my finances and what I do with my body and how I, what I do for recreation and how I, uh, how I do my studies and how I use my summers off? And so this series, which I've called The Four Loves, is an attempt to spend some time in each dimension, heart, soul, mind, and strength of, of Jesus' great commandment with the intention to make sure that we know how to translate that into our, our real life, like real real life. Um, so a number of years ago, I took the idea of love languages and I combined it with kind of these four dimensions that Jesus talks about. And I really just came up with a basic idea that there are four uh, spiritual love languages in the sense that when we become Christians, God kind of seems to put on into our lives, one way of, that we, that each of us primarily connect with God or experience God most easily. Of course, we experience God in all kinds of ways, but when I've looked at my own journey, when I've talked to other people, they will admit, you know, when I'm doing these things or if I'm in this situation or if these things are in place, it just really seems to energize my faith. And so we're going to talk about heart types today who experience God and their growth in God is intimately connected to connections with other people and community. We're going to look at soul types whose experience of God is kind of mediated primarily through worship and times of private prayer, stillness, solitude, reflection. We're going to look at mind types who experience God through scripture, through learning, through theology and reflection, discussion. And we're also going to learn about strength types who experience God primarily through serving and giving, literally using their strength, using their kinesthetic energy to love other people in tangible ways. And so really what we're gonna, this is kind of our big end game. This is where we're going. Uh, I wanna help you discover your spiritual love language. That's a gift from God. I want you to come into clarity for that. And then I want to help um, you come up with a customized plan for discipleship that is focused on you nurturing that core spiritual love language, but also learning uh, and putting a plan in place to grow in every dimension of your relationship with God. Even even the dimensions and the ways of connecting with God that are are challenging for you, that it's not just easy. Because Jesus says the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not heart, soul, mind, or strength. Whatever works for you, It's you need to learn to love God in all these dimensions. And when we do, there's a richness and there's a vitality. There's a kind of a transformational thing that God does, not just in terms of how we connect with him, but also how we see and understand and love the people that he's put us in community with. So that's the end game. And today we're going to look at the heart type, which is Christians who experience God primarily through connection and community. Okay, here's a statement. Humans need each other. We need each other. For some of you, that doesn't strike you as tremendously controversial. But it does stand at odds in a culture that values and champions self-autonomy and individualism as a marker of maturity and adulthood. The heroes and celebrities in our culture that we worship, and just have your radar attuned to this this week, think about who gets... um, exalted in our culture. It's probably people who live life on their own terms, people who somehow exude this rugged individualism. I know who I am. I'm strong in who I am. I don't need other people. Uh, They live life on their own terms, in their own power, and there's a sense in which they have this uh, aura of, I don't need any other person. I'm kind of a self-contained human being. I can find human flourishing and destiny on my own. And with those people, whether they're fictional or the posture of that in real life, our culture exalts those people. It says that's what it means to be fully human. Because in our culture, needing something implies weakness. If I need something, if I need you, that means I don't have all the resources within myself. That means weakness. And our culture balks at that in a lot of ways. And yet the Bible says part of what it means to be an image bearer of God, to be genuinely human, is to be a creature that needs other image bearers. Part of what it means to be a truly good and genuine and fully realized human being is to be in need of other people. An image bearer is someone who reflects the nature of God into the world. And the Bible tells us that God himself is a community. It's this mysterious three in one. And so if we image God, then it's going to stand to reason that part of how we image God faithfully is to live out community faithfully. When God creates Adam in the garden, he places Adam in the garden. It's unpolluted. There's no fall into sin yet. God has perfect fellowship with Adam. Adam has perfect fellowship with God. Everything's moving along. And God kind of stands back from what he has created. And there's this really striking realization in the sense that God has. God declares something that's kind of counterintuitive. In Genesis chapter 2, he says... It's not good for the man to be alone. That's not, that's not good. It's the first not good that we've heard in the creation story so far. Every single thing that's preceded it has been God did this and it was good. God did that and it was good. This is the first time God himself says that's not good. Now remember, Adam has perfect fellowship with God, a kind of fellowship that none of us have experienced, sustained, no sin to interfere with it, God has per, uh, Adam has perfect harmony with creation, perfect harmony with the animals, with himself. He has a full sense of his identity. And yet God says, ah, that's not good. You need a co-image bearer. I'm going to make you one that's like you. Not like, a, not like one of these animal creatures, but a creature that comes from you that is like you. That's what you need. And so if God creates woman for Adam to be this co-image bearer. And so from the very start of the biblical story, the Bible makes it very clear that what it means to be human is to be in relationship and community with other people. And to be a um, fully redeemed and restored image bearer will look like living in need of and learning to live out of that need and dependence and vulnerability with other people. Now, if you're a heart type almost everything that I just said is probably intuitive for you. You're like, duh, I kind of get that. I get it in my bones. It's intuitive for me. Heart types totally understand the need, the deep longing that humans have for relationship and community. A heart type is someone whose spiritual love language is really intimately tied to community and relational connectedness. Heart types are, are Christians who find their faith energized, as they nurture and develop godly relationships in their life. Heart types that I have known are usually very sensitive, they're very empathetic, they're very compassionate. They tend to feel things very intensely and live out of a heightened sense of a sensitivity to others' kind of emotional spaces. They're often quick to involve themselves in activities that hold promise for substantial emotional or relational outcomes. So if you're one of the first people to sign up for the ladies' retreat, It's probably because you were like, of course I want to do this. This is the major way that God brings um, clarity and direction spiritually into my life by surrounding me with other godly women. Jesus says in John 13, by this, all men will know that you, the church, are my disciples. This is the marker, that you love one another. And when a heart type reads that verse, they're like, totally, absolutely, That's what the church should be about. That's what we should be about. It's about loving one another, learning to live inside of that love. That's the kind of scripture that a heart type says, yes, we should be preaching that from the pulpit every Sunday. We can't emphasize that enough. You know, they read through all the one another's in the New Testament, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, uh, confess your sins to one another, uh, care for one another, be gracious and compassionate to one another. And heart, heart types are underlining that in their Bibles. They're like, yes, yes, yes. Um, when they talk about their faith, I've I found that heart types usually use language that's more kind of emotionally uh, rich, and so they'll talk often about, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, heart types might gravitate towards, it's about having a personal relationship with Jesus. They just see the world through relationship lens. What does it mean to be part of the church? Well, the church is God's family. So they often gravitate or like those metaphors because it speaks to them in a really um, powerful way. They're often vulnerable and sensitive in relational context, and and this really makes them a gift to the church. Uh, And a lot of heart types are really loved and valued within the churches that they're a part of. Heart types that I've known say Sunday morning factors like the message or the music are kind of secondary to the feeling of connectedness that they experience kind of before, during, and after the service, or the extent to which the music and the message pushes people into connectivity. So heart types kind of come into this space um, longing for that kind of connectedness. And if they don't experience it, um, it could have been a fantastically thorough theological message, um, but they're going to walk away feeling a sense of lack. Uh, This is why... uh, um, People in relationships make all the difference for, for heart types. And this is why even when churches go through all kinds of uh, chaotic seasons or chapters, um, in my experience, it's been the heart types that have been the first to say, yeah, we're not leaving, we're sticking through this. Because they, underst- uh, they are uh, part of the good w- reason why they are so invested and embedded in this church is because of relationships. They have a lot invested in terms of the people here, in terms of community, and they love Even in situations that are very hard, being people who can do what they can to hold people together in unity and move the church forward, um, not just logistically, but relationally, moving the church forward. The relationships that they've established are tremendously valuable to them, and so that usually supersedes whatever issues or grievances the church might be dealing with um, in, in their context. So that's kind of an overview, really quick overview of the heart type. I also want to talk about why it's important for each type to grow and mature. So I'm not starting with my own type this week, which is the mind type. I'll get to that. I will confess my own sins. But for this week, I want to kind of challenge heart types. I think it's really important for all the types to grow beyond their root because the temptation is to see your type as the type, your way of connecting to God as the way of connecting to God. Um, And there can be a lot of spiritual and emotional and relational dysfunction that happens if you kind of say, well, this is the way God made me, this is, this is it. I'm just going to love God with all my heart. And I would say someone who lived out of that posture, consciously or not, I would call it like an immature heart type. And it's so important for those people to grow into maturity in their type and extend and learn to love God in the other types because for an immature heart type... It's very easy, as I've talked to people over the years, for um, them to too much connect their emotional, their read of how they're feeling with what's actually happening. So if they feel good and they're feeling like things are going well, God is good. And if they feel um, down or depressed, there's this really immediate temptation to say, maybe God's abandoned me. If they, if they feel that like God's at work, God's at work. If they don't feel God's at work, sometimes it's hard for them to get out of So sometimes the, the emotions can play too strong a role in, a, in an immature heart type. And I think emotions are incredibly important. I think God speaks uh, in and through our emotions. I think our emotions are a gift from God. But like, like a lot of things, just relying on our, on our emotions is not a reliable foundation for our faith and for our practice, for spiritual growth and discernment. And so heart types need to seek to grow in all the other dimensions or they risk developing a spirituality that can be hardly distinguished from emotionalism where they're kind of tossed to and fro from the emotional ups and downs that they experience because they do feel things deeply and they care about things deeply. I think it's also tempting for heart types that I've known over the years to speak love at the expense of speaking truth. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, This is how we're all going to grow up into maturity together as a church. We're going to speak the truth in love. And heart types, because of their sensitivity to not wanting to hurt people or to create unity, can be easy for them to say, Well, I'm going to speak love, but I don't want to have some hard conversations about truth, about that I might need to confront certain things, because I don't want to hurt the person's feelings. And there's such a genuineness there. But that's really dangerous because it's speaking the truth with love in this dynamic, difficult synergy that grows us up. Truth without love is cold and it's toxic, but love without truth is, is cowardly and it's actually not love. And so heart types need to grow beyond what in a sense comes naturally to them because I think it's very easy for an immature heart type to rationalize away truth in order to focus on things like unity and, well, it's not a big deal, I'll just, it's okay, we just love, love, encouragement, support all the time. But now remember, Jesus' command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every single Christian in this room is called to work at and develop and strive towards unity love and care and support for one another, that's not something that we say, oh, I'm not a heart type, so I'll just leave that to the heart types in this community to do. We're all called to do this. It's just that the heart types among us are probably gonna be leading the way. They're the ones that we're gonna have to learn from because for them, it's intuitive and it's a driving priority. You don't have to ask them to make that a priority. They, they, just, they just want to, and they see the importance of it. It's kind of in their spiritual DNA, So that's a really brief introduction to the heart type. I know I haven't gone through all the other types yet. Connecting with God through kind of prayer, solitude, connecting with God through scripture, mind, strength, connecting with God through serving. But just this very, very basic, and you can change your mind. I'm not gonna lock you in. I'm not taking notes. How many people right now would say, I experience God in all kinds of ways, but I think I'm probably a dominant heart type. My faith really is energized by connecting with other Christians in the context of community, and when community's happening, and when godly relationships are at work in my life, I'm, I'm excited. Like, that just, that, I'm, put your hand up if you'd identify. Okay, so there you go. So maybe 20%, 25% of us. You guys are gonna be the ones that the rest of us need to look to to help us make sure that we're prioritizing unity, to make sure that we're prioritizing um, Harmony and restoration and reconciliation when those things become inconvenient or difficult for us. And the church needs you. I want you to hear that. Everybody put their hand up. The church really needs you. The church needs heart types. We need people who are going to prioritize biblical community and lead the way in showing what, what virtues like mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation and hospitality and grace, what those things look like in real life on the ground level. Um, not in the idealized world of the way things should be, but in the broken mess of what it means to be the church moving into Jesus' mission forever. Um, And so part of my role as a pastor is learning to identify heart types, helping you guys do what you do best, and then learn from you and with you because that's not my dominant spiritual love language. Okay, now, while we're talking about community and unity... I think it's really important to pause and get some clarity on exactly what we mean when we use the word community, or specifically Christian community, or what makes biblical community, distinctively biblical or Christian, because if there's one word that everybody uses and very few people can kind of put um, defining features on, it's the word community. Community has become this huge buzzword where everyone uses it. We all want to experience it. There are churches more and more that just talk about, you know, this is a place for you to find community. This is a place for you to belong. We want to be helping you experience community. So it's become this buzzword, and yet a lot of us can't define it, and it's this kind of squishy, nebulous idea. We know it when we experience it, but it's hard for us to understand. And I think it's very important, whether you're a heart type or not, to have an understanding of the kind of community we are called into as Christians. Because it looks very, very different actually than the the community that those who aren't in Christ, those of the world form and how they form it. And actually one of the texts that's really, really helpful in helping to define what Christian community looks like is Mark chapter three, verses three to 19. I have it on PowerPoint if you aren't familiar with your Bible, but if you are, I'd encourage you to look it up, Mark 3, Verses 13 to 19. And uh, This is what it says. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those who he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boan... Boan I can't pronounce that. Uh, Boanagers. Boanagers? Skip that uh, class in seminary. Uh, which means, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alpha- Alphaeus, uh, Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, this is one of those passages where it's easy to read over because you're like, that's like one of those just listed names in the Bible. I don't really get. This is kind of good. Okay, that's the 12 apostles. Jesus is in a circle. I get it. But we're probably not going to sit there for very long We just treat it as like basic information you need to know. But it's actually five super critical things about community that you learn, about distinctively Christian community that you learn from this passage. Number one, uh, Christian community is Jesus-centered. These guys aren't just gathering to experience community, to come together, to get to know each other better. They're gathering around someone. They're gathering around Jesus, Don Carson, who's a great uh, biblical scholar and commentator, he says, What binds these people together is not common education, it's not common race or common income levels, it's not common politics, it's not common nationality or accents or jobs or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. And they are all, and therefore, every Christian community is a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Christian communities are Christ-centered. You cannot sustain any kind of community that is distinctively biblical or Christian if, you're not, if everyone isn't constantly looking to Jesus for their cues. Number two, community, Christian community is based on camaraderie, not chemistry. This is super important. Jesus gathers people together who are natural enemies, who don't have any relational simpatico with one another. These aren't, uh, this wasn't a club. This wasn't people coming together because they had mutually aligned worldviews and perspectives on the world. The only one you have to look at, there's more, the only one you have to look at is the fact that Jesus pulls together Simon, who's a zealot, and Matthew, who's a tax collector. A zealot is one of the four intra-Jewish groups that arise between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New. Zealots said the way we get the kingdom of God God to come is to overthrow Rome politically and militarily. You kill people. Zealots had a subgroup of political assassins who would go into crowds and in political demonstrations and kill high-ranking Roman aristocrats or officials because zealots said God is the only king And if any other king like Caesar threatens his authority, we can use whatever means possible that we can. And anybody who works with Rome and collaborates with Rome, they're an enemy of God, so what happens to them is on them. Their blood's on their hands. Matthew, tax collector, Jewish, but uh, hated by the Jews because... When Matthew collects taxes for Rome, for the king, so he's collaborating with Rome, he also takes a lot extra administrative taxes so that he can become wealthy. So Matthew, in one sense, is living a life where he's trying to leverage all the benefits of being Jewish, but I like being part of the system. I love Rome. This is great. I got the house on the hill. I have tremendous wealth. Oh, I really feel bad taking more money than I should, but... It's kind of the way things go. Matthew, follow me. Simon, follow me. That first gathering, that's awkward. (laughs) Because you don't have to be much of a historical scholar to realize the only thing Simon's thinking in his own flesh is, when I get a chance, I'm going to slit that guy's throat. I'm going to kill him. That's what zealots do. That's who they are. Right, that's a dangerous thing for Jesus to do—to pull together people that are that different. That's like a church in BC hiring a church uh, a pastor from Ontario. There, there's a certain recklessness there. Is this going to work? Can we make this work? Natural enemies, but together because we love Jesus. Camaraderie is a feeling of trust, and it isn't built on chemistry like we like each other. You don't have to be best friends, but you have a shared goal, and it's going towards that goal that allows you to love and respect one another. And so a Christian community, we, we discover from this text, does not mean we're all going to be best friends. That is not... If that's what you think this is all headed towards, you're going to be gravely disappointed. We're not all going to be best friends, but we can have camaraderie. We can be moving towards a common mission and a common person um, and a common calling, and out of that camaraderie in Jesus, that can hold us together in a way that says, you know what, if it wasn't for Jesus... I would, I would pass you by on the other side of the street, but he's called you, he's called me, you're now my brother, you're now my sister. This isn't easy for me, but we have common mission, so we're going to learn to love each other. Number three, Christian community is a means to a greater end. Now that's hidden in the text, but Jesus calls a group of disciples, some of the other gospels say, and out of the group he calls 12. Why does he call 12? Why does he appoint 12 as apostles? Do you know? Do you know? Number 12 is significant in the story of the Old Testament. 12 tribes of Israel. Israel. Right, absolutely. So think about what Jesus is doing. I've called you. You guys are the 12. Why? Uh, Just because 12 sounds good. It's kind of like where I'm emotionally at and where I can handle building into you. And like, yeah, we're just going to be like the Jesus club. No, Jesus is saying, I'm rebooting Israel. Israel has failed in its mission to be the blessing to the nations that it was called to be in Genesis 12. And Jesus says, of all my disciples, I'm rebooting Israel now. So we're not just together to get warm fuzzies and to build community. We have a purpose beyond... Community is a means to an end. It's not the end. It's not Jesus said, oh, you're lonely, you're alienated, you need some new friends. Okay, have all the sinners and the tax collectors and the losers come to me and I'll give you a buddy system. It's, we are a part of a bigger mission. I'm rebooting Israel. I've called you together for a renewed mission to bring God's blessing into the world, into your neighborhoods, into your communities, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Christian community is always a means to a greater end, and it can't be sustained if you don't have that end in mind. If you're not striving towards it, and, and you're making community the end, it all kind of falls apart. When community becomes the point of gathering together as a church, gathering as a small group, gathering as a youth group or young adults, it will actually poison everything and rot it from the inside out. Not initially, I guarantee you it will. Fast forward the tape, one, two, three years, it'll, it'll just be rot from the inside out. Uh, Christian community means a commitment to one another. Jesus pulls these uh, uh, disciples together, appoints 12s and says, I'm gonna teach you how to be Israel, how to be the people of God. And later he says, I'm gonna give you a new command, love one another. As I have loved you, you now have to love one another. And that's how everyone's gonna know that you're actually serious about following me, that you're working to love one another, Simon and Matthew and sons of thunder, James and John, who think they're too big for their britches, they're larger than life. I'm gonna be the greatest. Of course, there's twelve but we kind of know who the ranking, we know how the ranking scheme goes. No, you have to learn to love one another. The New Testament expands on this. It says, you know, things like live in harmony with one another, outdo one another in showing honor, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, submit to one another, confess to one another. When Jesus is pulling these guys together, he's saying you're, you're on mission to bring God's love and justice and mercy and grace and salvation to the world. But it's not just out there, it has to happen here too. The, The gospel has to break into this relationship and out there. And that's important because Christian community, real biblical community is never driven by the question, what's in it for me? It's always driven by the question, how can I be a blessing to the brothers and sisters that God has put me apart in. Once you make the switch in your mind, and it can happen very subtly, where showing up to church, you know, well, being the church turns into showing up to church. Um, Being the church in small groups, you know, kind of deteriorates into showing up to small group. You start to think through a consumeristic lens. Well, you know what? This isn't really working for me. Jesus says, oh, the new command isn't let make sure others are loving you the way that I loved you. You love other people the way I've loved you. Other people might fail. This isn't about you, though. This isn't going to work if everybody comes and kind of waits for everyone else to be the blessing for them that they need. It works if we all come and saying, "I don't. this is hard to love, but I'm going to love. This is hard to sacrifice, but I'm going to sacrifice. And out of people making all those decisions, God takes all that momentum and does something beautiful through it. And lastly, really quickly, Christian community is going to mean consistency. One characteristic that needs to define, I think, increasingly more and more Christian community is consistency. Jesus called his disciples together into a new way of life, and he puts them in a situation where they're forced to do life together and learn under him. And I think it's become easier for all kinds of reasons for Christians today to just grow really relaxed and very casual in their commitment to one another. The first believers met every single day to break bread, to pray for each other, to encourage one another, to study and discuss the word. And I don't think that's a model that for our cultural context is doable. So I'm not saying that that's what real discipleship looks like. I understand that Christianity has, has all kinds of cultural expressions. But I don't think that the temptation for Christians in 2015 is to be overly committed to each other. Our temptation is to be undercommitted and very, very casual in our commitments. You read lots of studies, I read them. It's, you know, more and more people are coming to church once, twice a month. Uh, More and more students are maybe coming out to youth group once or twice a month, not going to church at all. Again, part of that is through the lens of, well, what's happening at Church on Sunday? What's in it for me? Oh, oh, that's okay. This is is a good Sunday to skip, so maybe I'll go later. We sign up for small groups, then we totally forget that our meeting night conflicts with that new show on Netflix. So we're like, oh, I'll totally go to small group. And like, after I power binge watch through this uh, this other thing. So our commitment increasingly is, I totally am committed to you, and you, and you, and you, and, and to this, unless it's hard or inconvenient or something better comes along. And by gathering these people and rebooting Israel, Jesus is saying, this has to be a center point of your identity, these relationships. And I know that can be taken in a very legalistic direction, and there have been generations of Christians who have made a a very life-choking legalism out of that. And I don't think anybody who knows me well is going to accuse me of being a legalist, but I think it's important to recognize modern temptations that it's very easy to make gathering together for corporate worship and teaching and small groups and these pods of formation that really do catalyze our faith, heart, soul, mind, and strength, that it's, um, it's very easy for us to make those priority two or four, five, six. Maybe we wouldn't admit that, but functionally speaking, that's kind of where it lies. And that makes sense, again, if church is a thing that you fit into your life, like it's an accessory to who you are and what you do. But if Jesus and his kingdom mission is central, I think that challenge, well, I don't think, it does challenge that paradigm. Church isn't something we show up for if it works for me. It's something that I show up for in order to bless other people, be reminded of who God is, who my mission is, or what my mission is for this week, and then to head out into the week. And part of it is going around and saying, yeah, we're in this together. This is going to be hard. Will you pray for me on Tuesday? Will you be there if I need an encouragement on, on Thursday? We're going to do this together. Okay, so let's talk about taking action. How can we grow our hearts? I want to talk about just two things super quick that we can do. Everybody in this room, it's going to be intuitive for heart types, but I want everyone to make a commitment to do it this week. Number one is listen. Take someone out in this church and just listen to their story. Just say, Tell me their story. You can't love your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor. Um, it's hard to love people when you make a lot of assumptions and you fill in your own blanks of their journey and story. Um, this can be someone that you think you know well. Maybe it's someone that, you know, you're like, I've, been, I've seen you at church. I've, I've been here for a long time. I know you have too. I've never sat down with you. Do you want to have coffee or tea and just hear your story? And again, you're not committing to becoming best friends. There's no, there's no point beyond just listening One of my pastoral goals is to meet with every single person in this church one-on-one in the first year that I'm here. I want to listen to you. I want to hear your story. I don't know how to pastor a community that I don't know. It's very dangerous for me to pastor a community where I'm making assumptions about who you are and not actually getting to know um, some of you. So we can all do that. Just one person this week. Number two is invite. Invite people um, uh, over. Uh, Hospitality is a spiritual discipline that we see in the New Testament, but we don't really talk about anymore. And um, I know life is busy and things happen. I know sometimes even Heather and I with young kids, you can kind of feel like, oh, we want to have people over. But then when we do when we take that risk and have people over and listen to their stories, we're always like, oh, that was so great. Like my love for God and my love for these people just increases. It's such a blessing. That's going to be something we're going to invite you this isn't something that we're just talking about from the front. Where's the leadership are going to invite you? Uh, Judith Rosenberg and I are kind of plotting to have a little Nelson Church community barbecue in June. So we're going to sit down with the SLT and make sure there's no uh, conflicts with any other things that are going on. But we're going to do a barbecue where we just say, hey, come over for dinner. Bring your own meat. It's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to do that as a church as a way to model, like, we can be doing this all the time. And we should be doing this all the time. So we're going to plan the first one. But if there's another heart type here, or maybe there's not a heart type, and you're like, oh, this would be a good challenge for me as an individual or as a couple or as a family, you'd be willing to take a barbecue on for July or August? Come talk to me or email Judith. Email me and say, yeah, we could do that. That'd be super, super cool. Cool. Building this kind of Christian community is a priority for God. Every epistle hammers home the themes like unity because the early church understood that part of a key dimension of loving God was loving your Christian, loving the neighbor God had placed you beside. And that, that conviction came out of the gospel itself. Because if you think about the gospel, at the heart of the gospel is this. It's the good news that while we were completely relationally disconnected from God, Jesus removed himself out of his heavenly bliss of community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He volunteered and removed himself, became like one of us, and then at the cross, allowed himself to be relationally, completely cut off from the Trinitarian Godhead so that we could be restored into community with God. I mean, that's the gospel. Jesus was willing to endure complete rupture in his community with God so that we could be restored into it. And so in light of that gospel and in light of Jesus' calling, may we never, may none of us ever take the call to build Christian community and biblical community lightly. Let's pray. God, as we close this time out with a song of worship, um, may we sing like, um, like Lala encouraged us at the start, not just going through the motions, but from our heart, God, From this place, it says, We are together, we're unified in you, and we love you. Send us out in your power, God. Amen.